way too much information into 20 pages and not quite sure how I'm going to do it. <laughs> but we're going to start in the beginning. Because um, if you're going to talk about God, you kind of have to start in the beginning. But before we get to that story that we know so well, um, I want you to hear a different story. So use your imaginations, and I want you to place yourself in Babylon in the 6th century BCE. Um, I don't know what it looks like. There aren't any pictures from back then. But just use your imagination. So in the 6th century, what you would find is you would find in the great city, the great empire of Babylon, at least one neighborhood dedicated to the Jewish people. Because in the 6th century, the Babylonian empire went into Jerusalem and conquered the people and took the people and moved them to the city of Babylon. So this place for them, for these Israelites, for these Hebrews, was strange. It wasn't home. It was not familiar. It felt a little odd. And so while they were there, they would have heard some interesting stories, stories they had not heard before, stories about the great Babylonian gods, perhaps none greater than Marduk. And so now that you're in Babylon and you are using your imaginations and you can see the sights, um, I want you to hear this story. And the Christian author, Rachel Held Evans, I preached a few months ago after she had died. In her last book, um, she wrote this story in which she retold, in her own words, the Genesis story, but also this Babylonian story of creation. And so here now, the Babylonian version of events. So in the beginning, before the heaven and earth were named, there lived two wild and capricious gods, Tiamat, god of salt water, and Apsu, god of fresh water. These two gods mingled together to produce many other gods, filling the cosmos with clamor and chaos. Nothing was in its right place. And when the younger gods grew so noisy that Apsu couldn't sleep, he resolved to kill each one of them. And a battle ensued. But instead of quieting the noise, Apsu faltered and was killed by Ea, the father of the great Marduk. Enraged, Tiamat advanced on Marduk and his forces, backed by a massive army of demons and monsters, of hurricanes and hounds. But Marduk was a valiant warrior, so he challenged his great-grandmother to do a battle alone with him. And so the two fought and fought until Marduk captured Tiamat in a net and drove a great wind into her mouth so that she became bloated and slow. And Marduk shot an arrow into Tiamat's belly, cutting through her insides and puncturing her heart. Then he split her body into two pieces, flinging half the corpse into the heavens to hold back the waters behind the firmament, and the other half to the earth to hold back the waters that rage below. And from her hollowed eyes flowed the Tigris and Euphrates River. Then Marduk made the stars and moon and assigned the gods to various duties. He put everything in order, sky, land, plants, and animals. And among the gods, he took the highest place. And from the blood of his enemies, he created humanity to serve as their slaves. 
And finally, Marduk saw that a great temple was made in his honor, a temple from which he could rule and rest. And he lives in that temple in Babylon to this day. And the king of Babylon is his emissary. So this, for the people of Babylon, was the story of who they were, of why they were there, of where they came from. And so this is Rachel Held Evans' version of this, but she actually takes it from an ancient document called the Enuma Elish. This is a, a document that was found in the late 1800s on stone tablets. And so when the Babylonians told their story of creation, of where we come from, they told the story of a great battle, of a conquest, of a great warrior, And they told the story of how we are all created out of the corpse of those that he has defeated. And really, we're kind of lucky to be that even, because we are made slaves of these gods, with one person being elevated above the rest. And so if someone were to go back and ask the Babylonians why they lived like they do, they would point to their god, Marduk, and to the creation that he brought out through conquest. And if you think about it, the Babylonians were an empire. They expanded their borders. They conquered other peoples, like the Israelites. Why did they conquer other people? Because their God was a conquering God. And so I wanted to read that because it is during this time that it is believed that the Israelites began to write down their scriptures. So for the first several hundred years of Israel's walk with God, these stories were passed down as oral tradition. You would go to the temple and you would listen to somebody recount a story that they had had told to them over and over and over again through time. And so when they get to Babylon and they no longer have the temple to meet at, they are worried that they are going to begin to lose their identity as a community that they will forget who they are as the people of God. And so they take these oral stories and they write them down. And you get large parts of the Bible written down for the first time. And so when we hear the creation story in Genesis, we have to hear it against the backdrop of this Babylonian story. Because it was written at around the same time. It was written down at around the same time. And when you read them together, you can hear some very clear contrasts. And so with that, I invite you to listen to um, this version of Genesis 1. I'm going to use Rachel Held Evans' version of it for the reading today. It's very similar with just some embellishments. So in the beginnings, before the heaven and earth were named, there was Elohim, God, Now the cosmos was formless and void. Nothing was in its right place. But the Spirit of God hovered over the chaotic waters and said, let there be light. And there was light and it was good. And God separated the light from the dark, calling one day and the other night. This is what God did on the first day. Then God said, let there be water above and water below. So God made the firmament, a great dome to hold back the waters of the sky, and it too was good. And God separated the waters, calling all that was above heaven and all that was below earth, 
And this is what God did on the second day. Then God separated the land from the seas, and God said, let the land produce all kinds of plants, fruit and flowers, wheat and willow trees. And sure enough, the land sprouted, grass grew, grapes ripened, trees stretched out their arms and dug in their roots, lilies bloomed. All of this God did on the third day, and it was very, very good. And on the fourth day, God pinned the lights to the firmament, sun, moon, and stars. Let these lights serve as timekeepers, God said, to mark the days and years and special seasons. And God saw that the lights were good, each one in just the right place, each one with a special assignment. Then on the fifth day, God said, let the waters below teem with living creatures and let birds soar through the sky. So God stocked the oceans with sharks and eels and seahorses and fish. And God filled the sky with eagles and sparrows and hummingbirds and owls. And the whole earth was swimming and flying, swarming and soaring. But still it wasn't enough. So on the sixth day, God created all of the animals of the land. Cattle and camels and sheep and snakes and mighty stags and timid field mice and ferocious lions and wise little ants. And God separated all the creatures into families and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill up the earth. But it still wasn't enough. So God said, Let there be people and let them rule over my creation as emissaries, little kings and little queens created in in my image and of my nature. So God made people on the sixth day, and God told them to be fruitful and to multiply, to use all the plants and animals for their good, and to be responsible with the world. When God reached the seventh day, God saw that creation was in order. Everything was in the right place. So on the seventh day, God rested. May God bless this reading. So as I said, the story of Marduk and Tiamat is is accurate. That's what we find in the Enuma Elish, the ancient um, scriptures of the Babylonians that we have. And so when they would talk about who they are, when they would talk about where they come from, what they're about, they would tell this story about a great warrior and a great conquest And so it's no wonder that they were themselves great warriors. That's what they held in esteem. The greatest of all beings in the universe is a great warrior. And so when the Jewish people told their story of creation, they were doing similar things. They were talking about who they were, about who God had made them to be, about what the nature of the world is, except that in the Jewish rendition, it's just a little bit different. You see, in the Genesis story, we hear the story of a, a God who, who makes an act of benevolence towards a formless void, who breathes life into the chaos. And you should know that in Hebrew, the, the word in Genesis, it says, God hovered over the face of the deep. The Hebrew word for face of the deep has the same root as Tiamat. It's a different language, but it's the same root. And so 
In the Babylonian myth, God conquers Tiamat. In the Jewish story of creation, God hovers and breathes life into that formless void. And this God at every step, as God, as our God makes creation, God stops to say it is good. You should know also there that this is not just good. The Hebrew word is tov, which means really good. As in, you've heard the Jewish term mazel tov? That's that word, tov. Creation is really good. And so, they would tell this story as a story of who they are and how they got here and what all of creation was about. And if this is the way that you understand creation, uh, this benevolent act of God, breathing God's life into all that is, then who are the people who most emulate this? It's probably not warriors, right? <laughs> like it would be in Babylon. Rather, it would be those who serve, those who live with the sense that everyone is made in God's image, not just some people, but all people. The people who would most emulate this would be those who see creation, all of it, the trees and the birds and the wind and the water as gifts of God. And so the Jewish people would tell these stories to remind themselves that they are different than the Babylonians. We understand the world in different ways. This is a religion that stands, and an understanding of God that stands in stark contrast to the Babylon idea about God. And so if we just read Genesis, we don't quite get all of this, but it's there. Telling these creation stories in this way is about lifting up a different kind of God, one that is not like Marduk. And in doing so, it's supposed to remind ourselves that we are a different kind of people, that we have a different kind of allegiance, sometimes an allegiance that is at odds with the world. And so in the world where there is division, we celebrate the divine image in all people. Where other people see creation and nature as something that, that needs to be conquered, we see it as something that has been gifted to us and that we are charged with taking care of. And where others lift up conquest and war, we lift up compassion. We lift up one human community of which we are all a part. This is a different way of being in the world. It is a different purpose for why we are here. And so stories about God and about creation, they're about God, but they're about us as well. Because the stories we tell about our origins and where we come from, that shapes us. It forms us into a particular kind of people. And we might think that, well, the Babylonians had a creation story, but we don't do that anymore. But we do. We still have conversations in our society about origins and where we come from. So I had a friend in college who was getting his PhD in biology. He studied ducks. That was his, his scientific research. And he used to tell us about his, his life and his spiritual quest to 
to reconcile his faith, which was very deeply held, and his uh, study of science. And he told this story once about going to China to deliver a lecture. He was part of a group. They were going to a university to present on some of their findings. And he was just getting ready to walk on stage. And somebody pulled him aside. And he was told in that moment that if he was going to talk about the theory of evolution, that he needed to avoid talking about survival of the fittest. Now understand, for a biologist, this can be really difficult. Um, Darwin's theory of evolution, as it is taught in the U.S., often invokes the idea that creatures change based on principles of natural selection. So they get these mutations, and the mutations make it more likely that they will survive from one generation to, a next, to the next. And because they survive, they pass down those genetic mutations. So they, had, they change, and they are more likely to survive. And so the theory gets the title, Survival of the Fittest. And so how in the world do you talk about evolution as a biologist without talking about survival of the fittest? But what he was told was that in China, they don't teach it as survival of the fittest. You see, we live in a capitalist society that is market-driven, and we like competition. That is what fuels the world around us. And so the idea of survival of the fittest fits really well in that kind of a society. But in China, where there's a history of collecti collectivity, where for the last 70 or so years they've had a communist government, they don't talk about survival of the fittest. They talk about survival of the cooperative. Those who can cooperate with these changes. And I remember my friend sharing that neither one of these ideas is incorrect. They are two ways of talking about the same thing. You can see natural selection as competition, or you can see it as cooperation. It just, it's two sides of the same coin. But it gets back at this idea, the way in which we tell stories about creation, or about our origins, or where we come from, they, they shape us, and they are shaped by us. These are ideas that, that instill with us a sense of, of the purpose of why we are here. And so in our society, where self-sufficiency and competition are important, one story is told about surviving and fitness. And in another society, where group identity and fidelity to the whole is, is lifted up higher, another story is told. And we could say this about a lot of things in our world. Things that, that we talk about why we are here and what our purpose together is. In our world, we hear stories about invisible hands that influence things. Or we hear stories about great Americans who lift themselves up by their bootstraps. These are all part of the stories that we tell about who we are as a people. About where we come from. We build museums and statues, and all of this is meant to shape us as a particular kind of people with particular beliefs. And none of that is bad. 
It's really just the way it's been for thousands of years, that we pass down our identity through these stories, through these symbols. We are telling publicly the stories of where we come from so that those values might be held up. But the question that we always have to raise as followers of God is whether or not some of these understandings of of our origins and purposes, whether or not they contradict what we know to be true of creation according to Scripture. It's not really about asking whether or not the facts line up, because 2,500 years ago they just weren't asking the same questions we're asking now. But it's a question of whether or not we lift up and celebrate the values of creation, the goodness of all that is. Do we see it as good? Do we see it as a benevolent act of a loving God? Do we see all humanity as instilled with the image of God, every single person? Do we see our mission to care for creation around us, to take care of what God has gifted us? Because to talk about God as as the creator is to talk about seeking to live a different life, one that is dedicated to a different kind of God. And so we lift up the breath that God breathes into every being. Maybe sometimes we even need to remember that that's your breath too. Your breath is God's breath. Do we recognize every being as being filled with that spirit? Do we celebrate creation as good, all of creation as good? Because over and over and over again, we hear God say it. God makes something and God says, it is good just the way it is. And we in our world often see people separated into the castes or races or religions or whatever else. But that is not how God made us. That is not our purpose. And so this is who our God is. To talk about creation is to announce that this is what we think the meaning of life is, the purpose of why we are here. Because to talk about God is to talk about purpose. So this next month, we are going to continue talking about God. I know we started at the beginning. I don't know if we'll get to the end, but we'll see. But by talking about God, we're also going to talk about who we are, why we are here. What is the life force, the energy that animates all things? We'll be talking about who God calls us to be and how that call happens. Because how we understand God reflects in so many ways what we think the point of our existence is here. That's why there is no better place to start than in the beginning. God saw that everything was in the right place. Amen. Well, at this point in the service, we offer an invitation every week. This is an invitation to those who have been worshiping with us, who would like to join this community in membership and formally journey with us we invite you to come and join me during this next hymn. But for all of us gathered, we celebrate the creation that God continues to do around us. So I invite you to reflect on and think about where is it you see new creation, new life happening. 
And we invite you to stand and join us in singing our hymn of commitment, number 33. shall bow in humble adoration. 
Jesus.